Welcome back to the Stronger by Science Fireside Chat series. I'm your host, Greg Knuckles, joined today by a special temporary guest host, Eric Trexler. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. It is my pleasure. All right, let's uh, let's just dive on into it. Uh, if this is the first Fireside Chat you're listening to, this is just fun, off-the-wall, lighthearted content, not necessarily fitness-related, even though maybe a fitness example or illusion will come up. Uh, but yeah, just two buds chatting. Um, you know, th- on that note, I, I have noticed we do tend to gravitate towards somewhat fitnessy stuff because it's really our only card to play. Like, like I try to have non-fitness aspects of my life, but I don't. Yeah, I mean, same. Whatever. Let's let's just see how this goes. Uh, we may stop after like five fireside chats once we completely exhaust the list of things we're <laughs> capable of talking about. Uh, but for the time being, let's just forge on ahead. Let's do it. So uh, someone asked us a question. Something has gone very wrong and you're competing in the Miss America pageant. Parentheses. Congrats on the state pageant wins. Close parentheses. What is your talent? This is your move. I hope you don't mind me stealing it, but you often tend to challenge the premise of a question. Correct. Um, there is a Mr. America pageant already. And as far as I know, the, the talent um, round is basically two components, muscularity and leanness. And so I would say <laughs> uh, for the Mr. America pageant, that's pretty much what I'm bringing to the table is a symmetrical physique, off the charts muscularity, and just absolutely shredded leanness how about if mr america if the mr america pageant ran differently in a way that was perhaps more comparable to the miss america pageant Mm. what what talent would you then be bringing to the table well that's a very different scenario but what i would do almost certainly uh it'd have to be musical so i back in the day i i went to a, a a school system it was a public schools but there was a bunch of like you know, it's a giant school system, a bunch of like really overachieving kids. And so the band program was very cutthroat, very competitive. And I was a percussionist in the band and I was actually first chair. And so, uh, that was something I did not take lightly. So I played the drums and, you know, a long list of percussive instruments, but that's where I really developed my competitive side. I think, um, in eighth grade, there was somebody in my band class who was obsessed with band. And for me, it was like a very, it was very far down my list of priorities. Like I had football practice every day. I loved that band was just like, I had to do something third bell. So I'll do band class. Mm -hmm. But he challenged me. You're allowed to do like head to head percussion battles. It was like a rap battle. He would call me out every single week, every week and challenge for the first chair spot. And so it was like every single week, they'd be like, all right, fine, uh, Eric, you got to learn this new music. The challenge is in one week. I have to do it and like come back and win it. And I, I swear to God, it was every single week. But you know what? Props to that guy. He may be better at percussion. So thanks for the challenge. As I understand it, the film Whiplash is actually loosely biographical and, and based on your life during this time period. Is that correct? I have no idea what that movie is, but I like to think of it more like Drumline with Nick Cannon. <laughs> that that just was somewhere my... in between the two. <laughs> yeah, I I haven't seen Whiplash. I just know that it exists. Is it basically the same thing as Drumline? It's uh, you know, I don't know any of the actors' names, but it's uh, it's 
dang it, what is that guy's name? Bald dude. He plays Jonah Jameson in the the old Spider-Man films. No idea. What, whatever. Anyway, he's like an asshole jazz band instructor. And there's this kid who's trying to get really good at, at jazz drumming. Uh, and it's like a very abusive, like mentor-mentee relationship. Yeah. That, that's That's literally all I know about the movie. Lindsay was watching it on an airplane one time. And so I was kind of like looking over. And so that's what I intuit that it's about just based on kind of like the facial expressions and body language of the actors. Yeah. So that's probably not at all what it's about, but I I was trying to come across as cultured. I think, I think the critics liked that one. Pretty close. I, I, I did get to have the generic like garage band experience though. Like if you play the drums, you have to, right? Yeah. So there was one time me and my buddies who actually like some of them were like very skilled musicians. We played a battle of the bands in a laser tag facility. Holy <laughs> we, shit. You can't get more garage band than that. And uh, dude, our band was awesome. Like everybody else played this like absolute garbage genre of music. We came out there. We played a Jimi Hendrix song. Hey, Joe. We played a heart shaped box by Nirvana and we threw a Radiohead tune in there. Like we got to play three tracks and we covered a spectrum. It was sick. We were not even close to winning, but I thought we did the best. Who did you have in your band at that age who was capable of playing Hendrix? Actually, so our guitarist is a, he he got a very coveted scholarship to a music conservatory. I think that's what they call it. But like a, a really, really prestigious uh, music school. And he plays jazz guitar professionally. But uh, but he he's he was an exceptionally skilled guitarist. That is super cool. Yeah, so that's what I mean. Like for me, it was like, oh yeah, I was in this little garage band. But like, one of us was actually like a insanely talented musician. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he he carried a lot of weight. Here's a fact most people don't know about me. I was in a band for one weekend. How did that go? Uh, so I I played a little guitar. Mm-hmm. I had a buddy who was a bassist. Had another friend who was a drummer. Uh none of us could sing worth anything whatsoever. Right. Just absolutely tone deaf and terrible. <laughs> um, the drummer was dating this girl who, who was quite a good singer. Like she had, she had a really good singing voice, uh, had stage experience. So like we thought she would be a good front woman for the band. Like, you know, you know, be, be able to, to, to bring the energy on stage. Um, so we got together. We, uh, we jammed twice over the course of a weekend. Yeah. And then uh, the drummer and the lead singer broke up. Mm. And uh, we just didn't care enough to try to find another singer. That's tragic. Yep. You know, th- that it is a good point because every like high school garage band is like, dude, who the hell is going to sing? Yeah. So me and those two buddies, one of which is like a professional guitarist now, we were in this class where you base, it was like in eighth grade or, or freshman year or something, but you learned how to use like Microsoft Word. Mm-hmm. And by the way, none of it counts anymore. Word changed to a new version. All the stuff we learned is done. It was like Word and Excel and PowerPoint and all that. The the Windows 95 version? I forget what, but whatever it is, it's all outdated. Mm-hmm. But they taught us all these cool tips and tricks and stuff. But there was this kid in our class, very mysterious kid, rambled into town. Nobody knew where he came from. He was like an older kid. We didn't really know how he was in our class, but... This kid just kind of appeared out of nowhere, mm-hmm. was in our band for like three months, and then just like kind of drifted his way out of town. It was almost, it was like a fictitious character. Yeah. I'm still not certain that the kid actually existed, but he like rambled in and then just <laughs> rambled out. And it's like the memories are so vague at this point. I'm like, 
what was that all about? Like, where did he go? Where yeah, did he come yeah. from? But, uh, but he, he had an incredible voice. So he just kind of rambled in. We did a battle of the bands and, and then he rambled out. That's awesome. Yeah. Moved on with his life. So my, my skill, if Mr. America finally opened up and would have some, uh, some talent rounds, that would be mine would be the, the drumming and percussion. What about you? So, so th- I would go for a strategy that has previously paid off for me before. And if, if the person against whom this strategy works uh, is listening to this, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to get some, some pretty nasty emails or Facebook messages in response. Okay. But uh, so back in high school, uh, I ran for student body president. There was only one other person running. And the way that the like campaigning worked essentially is, you know, you could hang up posters and whatnot around the school, but we had uh, like a homeroom period and there were TVs in all of the, uh, all of the homeroom classrooms. And so like we each prepared a little pitch to say like, this is why you should vote for me for student body president. Like ultimately it doesn't matter. We had absolutely no de jure authority whatsoever. Um, so there's, there's not that much you can, you can pitch, uh, as far as like student body president services go. And, um, so I I was aware of that. And for whatever reason, they like recorded mine first and they were going to broadcast both of them during the same homeroom period. And they assumed like, you know, these kids aren't going to put much time and effort into putting together stump speeches. Um, and like, I didn't, but I did put some time and energy into essentially preparing a comedy routine that lasted for the entirety of homeroom period. And so that I was the only person that people were aware of as being on the ballot. And like they started running her little pitch during the last like two minutes of homeroom and then like when class changes started. And so I essentially won by default because there was another name on the ballot, but like she never had the ability to to put herself in front of the people which you know in my defense they could have reviewed those two videos and decided to roll hers first but I kind of rolled the dice there and I was like maybe I can just win by default uh and that's essentially how it went and so I think for my talent in the Mr. America pageant I would try to to use the same tack uh and my talent would be baking bread because depending on, you know, what kind of leavening you're using, how much, the ambient temperature of the room, what kind of bread you're making, etc., that's going to take anywhere between like 4 and 24 hours, give or take. Um, so yeah, like pe- people would go before me in the pageant, obviously. And then when my talent segment came up, that would be the end of the pageant. Nice. Like I would be the last thing that the, that the judges would see. And as long as that loaf was good, that would be the last memory of the pageant in their minds. Uh, It could completely backfire. So they could say, hey, this guy completely ruined the event. There's Mm -hmm. no way he can win. Uh, But, you know, it would be one of those Hail Mary plays that may or may not pay off. You know, I have a real life story of a Hail Mary play that that did pay off. Um, I was doing an essay competition one time and there were like some pretty high stakes like Mm -hmm. for for winning it in terms of like college ramifications and uh i didn't know who was going to be judging these essays 
but I you had to pick one of the three prompts from the front of the sheet and one of the three from the back. So you're writing two essays in mm-hmm. a given time frame. And it was timed. It was like you, you couldn't think of it beforehand. And I looked at the prompts and I immediately made a decision. I am going to write one of them as the most lighthearted, frivolous, carefree pieces you could ever read. Very fun. The other one was dark. I mean, <laughs> it was it was dark. Mm-hmm. And my gamble was... If the same person grades both or scores both, they're either going to think I am a lunatic and immediately disqualify me, (laughs) or they're going to say, this kid's got range. And uh, I I ended up winning one of the, one of the like pretty big things from that essay competition. So, so it it paid off, but I was like, man, somebody's either going to be really impressed or just downright concerned for me when they read this. It, It was pretty awesome. So I, I did something similar in middle school. Um, so it, it wasn't an essay competition. There wasn't really anything on the line. Um, but there was a speech competition where there was, you know, like a class-wide thing and then a school-wide thing and then a county-wide thing. And the county-wide thing, I mean, like, ultimately it doesn't matter. We were in, we were in fucking, like, sixth or seventh grade. Nothing we had to say at that time period in our lives had any value whatsoever. But it was one of those things where the well-to-do people in the community were going to come out to, you know, support the kids who are trying to learn how to do public speaking and, and do well for themselves and whatnot. Um, and so, uh, and, and there was like a different prompt for each one. So won the class competition, won the school competition. For the countywide competition, the, uh, the prompt was like something related to freedom of speech. And... Um, <laughs> So uh, at that time, so I grew up in in a very small rural town. We had one high school. The high school was built in the 50s, and it was just tragically overcrowded. So it it was built for, I want to say, eight, nine hundred students. And so like the county itself had a fair amount of people, like part of the county was a suburb, essentially for a larger city. Uh, but like my my little part of it was super tiny. Uh, but the high school itself, like I said, was built for about 800 people. And then by the time I was going through, I think my freshman year, it had like 2,200 students. So it was way over capacity. We needed a new high school. Um, but, you know, the, the way that the county was proposing to raise the money for that high school was by increasing either the, the county sales tax by like half a cent or imposing like a quarter of a percent land tax, something like that. Um, and so like <laughs> as elections go, um, you know, it's mostly like the fairly old people voting, especially in county elections. And they made sure that the voting process didn't coincide with like a, a big general or even midterm election when turnout would be high. Like they made sure that it was taking place at just like random times and random years where they could ensure that turnout would be pretty low. And so the the bond to raise the money for the new school kept getting voted down. And at some point during that process, we like I don't know if this was like a broader initiative or just like something we did in our classroom, but we all wrote letters into the local newspaper about why we thought like there should or shouldn't be another high school. So I think this was seventh grade. So we, we were already thinking like, okay, we're going to be going to high school in a couple years. Do we want to be going to a new high school or the same old like 
1950s super rundown high school um and so the the general vibe i think among all of us was yeah we want a new high school like the, the current one like the facilities are, are garbage um and so we all wrote into the newspaper and you know this is a small town so like the local newspaper was how people disseminated information uh like social media definitely didn't exist yet and so, you know, every week the newspaper would come, we'd look at the letters to the editor section. They didn't publish any of our letters. They didn't publish any letters from anyone under like 58 years old. And so uh, for, so to circle back to the original story, for the prompt for like the countywide speech competition, it was something related to freedom of speech. And so I remember my whole thing was like, look, freedom of speech means that the government's not going to prosecute you for whatever you say, but ultimately for your speech to to get out and like reach people. And, and again, keep in mind, this was before social media. It was like, there are people who turn the levers of power that have platforms that ensure, you know, what speech gets stifled and what speech gets amplified. Um, and so like that was in, in Davie County, that was the local newspaper and that was it. And so I knew the editor-in-chief of the newspaper would be at that countywide speech competition because that was just, like, the kind of thing he would go to. And so uh, I just went, like, straight scorched earth on the Davie County Enterprise <laughs> in the speech competition with him in the audience, and I just stared at him the whole time. And uh, he came up afterwards and said... That was very compelling, if a little bit uncomfortable. And the very next week, he published my letter. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Prop, props to, to the editor there. Yeah, he was... So, I mean, like, you know, keep in mind, I'm like I'm like 13 years old. I, I didn't know the guy. And I had this image of him as just like, you know, this just complete shithead who like... You, you were living out the lyrics of a Rage Against the Machine song. Yeah, yeah. Basically. Like, yeah. It, and I mean, I, I do think I had a point because ultimately, like the kids going to the high school, they weren't like we weren't going to be paying a, a significant portion of the sales tax and certainly not a significant portion of the land tax that would be raised in the county. But like we were the people who were about to go to the high school and were going to be affected by whether there was a new school or not. So I did think that it was like a little shitty that that none of us got to make our opinion heard, at least publicly. Um but anyway, yeah, he ended up being super chill about it. Very cool. Now, we are about to move on to our next topic here, but but Greg, I understand some things that you said in a previous episode have kind of started generating some controversy, and you want an opportunity to get out ahead of that controversy. Right. There has been some controversy regarding the Pop-Tart ravioli situation. Mm -hmm. uh, a few people have written in indicating that they in fact, think both of them are subcategories of strudels. Mm -hmm. um, and I would like to counter that by saying that they all fall, like now that I've had some more time to think about it, I think they all fall within the greater empanada family. Wow. Um, so Man. so anyway, just, you know, I, I hear your criticism and I just think we should all keep an open mind about that. I, that's a good point. Man, that, that adds another layer to that. It really does. To that discussion, wow. Okay, so... The next topic we have here, um, someone asked us, and this is a topic that's near and dear to probably both of our hearts, certainly mine. How and when did we transition from bro science to evidence-based when it comes to our general fitness outlook or our fitness approach? 
Uh, do you want to start with this one or should I? I, I just told a really long story, so I, I think you should lead this one off. Yeah. So like a lot of people, um, I kind of started out in fitness with the muscle magazines. Um, and for the younger people that are listening, a magazine was basically <laughs> a packet of <laughs> written materials uh, with a lot of glossy pages. But I started out with the muscle magazines and actually uh, I'm pretty sure the one that I used to read a lot actually just like stopped printing recently, which is devastating. We're, we're like approaching dinosaur age somehow already like industries <laughs> we grew up with are done yeah but uh but anyway started out with the muscle magazines and then started branching out into other online sources and uh if you do that eventually you're going to run into some contradictions and you know when, when you're just getting everything from a singular magazine with one editing team you're you're pretty much getting a a decently consistent narrative in most cases but once you start branching out, you have to run into some uncomfortable questions like, what do we know about fitness? How do we know what we know? And how well do we actually know that we know what we know? And as you start getting into those questions, eventually it's going to lead you to science. Like that, that's pretty much the whole, the whole purpose. If you were to kind of boil it down is like figuring out what we know how we know it and how confident we are in knowing that once you become cognizant of the fact that epistemology exists exactly. like e even if you don't know the term and before we move on uh, do you mind just giving us a very simple definition of epistemology philosophy of knowledge Perfect. um what does it mean to know things how can we know things right how can we reliably come to know things about the world exactly yeah you start saying okay i need to figure out where i'm getting my information and how how reliable, how credible this information is. And, and so, and, and by what standard can you judge that? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think it was kind of a natural, uh, very gradual transition into that evidence, evidence-based approach. And I mean, this took place, I first started like reading through the muscle magazines when I was like probably 16. And I wouldn't say I really was super focused on the evidence-based side of things until I was like 20. It was a very, very gradual thing. But what I noticed was after making that transition, there were a few distinct phases of that, you know, becoming evidence-based transition. So the first phase was that of the myth buster or the debunker, you know? So it was basically like you had been fed this bill of goods for all these years. You thought you knew everything about fitness. Turns out most of it was just like slick marketing and for that first phase, you basically and, are like... And also that the USDA and the Food Guide Pyramid are trying to kill you. Yes, th that as well. But I, I think everyone went through that phase. I think so. Where it's just like, guess what? Saturated fat isn't going to murder you, but whole grains will. Yeah. Uh, so like down with the government, <laughs> yeah. like CDC is in, in the pocket of big, big sugar or whatever. Yeah. I definitely went through that phase. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it, like you just go overboard on the skepticism yeah. once you realize skepticism is allowed. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, so some in that phase, it's like you kind of become this know-it-all who's like hyper skeptical about everything, but not particularly helpful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you can tell people a million things they're doing that aren't helpful, but then if they're like, yeah, can you tell me something that is? You're like, 
uh, I'm not really that interested in that. And also just like the general posture of like, oh, it's coming from the so-called experts. Probably bullshit. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it was like a pretty superficial level of understanding, engaging with content at a very superficial level, but at least trying to access more reliable information. Then the second phase uh, for me happened end of undergrad, beginning of grad school, when I actually found out I didn't know anything at all. Like when, when you start digging deeper into the, like the methods behind the finding, the first phase is to realize, oh God, I need to learn a lot of things very quickly. And so then there's that learning phase uh, where, where you actually really doubt your, your interpretation of stuff. And then the next phase, which is, in my opinion, the good phase, is that of a translational facilitator. So the whole idea is turning research findings into actionable, helpful conclusions. So it's not just being some know-it-all who dunks on people on the internet when they say that they used a stupid supplement. Because I went through that phase, not a good phase, but I think a lot of people have to unfortunately pass through it at some point. But, uh, but that's really like the goal, is getting to that phase where you can turn research findings into good, helpful recommendations that are actually useful. And when you get to that phase, you realize that every conclusion you draw, it's not just a conclusion. It, it, it comes with a level of confidence in the conclusion, and it also comes with a level of importance. So when you get to that phase, that kind of step of the journey, you notice that the advice you're giving is a lot more nuanced because it's always the conclusion plus the confidence level, plus the how much does it really matter level as well. And so I'd like to believe that I've settled in there, but really you kind of continuously oscillate between the last two, right? Where you feel really good about a certain area, but there are still areas where you're like, I really don't know anything at all. And, and so I think now it's just kind of trying to be helpful, trying to be useful and translate stuff that actually, you know, it's not just dunking on people on the internet. It's not just myth busting, but it's actually creating helpful stuff, but then continuing to get better at those areas where you're still in, in that second stage of like, wow, I have a lot of blind spots in this specific topic. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess that, that was kind of my, my general transition and, and the reason for it was completely selfish. Uh, you know, it was, uh, I wanted to get as big as a human could feasibly do. And, uh, and I was like, well, I better figure out the right way to do it. You know, it, it was completely self-serving. I want the information. Mm -hmm. I want all the good stuff. And so that's why I started kind of branching out into different, uh, different areas of information was just, I, I don't want the slick marketing. I want to know what's going to work to get me as big and strong as, as humanly possible. That makes know? sense. So what about you? So I think, uh, I think the broad contours of kind of my journey are similar to yours. I, I think <laughs> I think the beginning of it is a little bit different. So um, my kind of my first flirtation with epistemology was a, a very, uh, oh, what's a good word? Like a very reluctant flirtation. So... I mentioned something on the first fireside chat, uh, and that is that I was raised in a like fundamentalist young earth creationist household. I think a lot of people thought that was a joke. That wasn't a joke. No, that that's uh, not. <laughs> and another thing to know is that I grew up in tobacco country. And so, um, 
like there was a multi-decade information war between rj reynolds and philip morris and like the scientific establishment about whether cigarettes cause cancer and you know within the community i grew up that was that was seen as far from a settled question and keep in mind this is like the 90s this is this is when the question had been settled for like two decades at that point it was still like i can't really trust the government can't really trust science like they're saying cigarettes are bad but our entire economy runs on cigarettes kind of like prison uh our, our entire economy runs on cigarettes so can they really be that bad can we really believe that they're that bad so anyway um i had like very deep skepticism and mistrust of science in general from both of those two things both like kind of growing up so it was weird so i was dealing with a lot of um uh what's it called when when you're holding contradictory ideas in your head cognitive dissonance yeah yeah so so my whole childhood was just like an ocean of cognitive dissonance because yeah. you know we weren't luddites like we used modern technology like clearly science helped that be developed uh like my parents believed in modern medicine they weren't like crazy anti-vaxxers or anything like that um so like on one hand obviously a lot of science is good and useful and created the modern world but then clearly like some of it is just like utter and complete bullshit right so so like that was the the tension within young Greg's brain. Um, we're basically like, is science a force for good and progress, or is it evil uh, and and bad, and you can't trust any of it? And so I, I think like before I could before I could come up to the epistemological answer of hey, science is good and useful. Uh, I had to <laughs> I had to eventually settle on science is trustworthy and not fundamentally evil and so like <laughs> that was that was its whole process uh and then once i finally arrived on hey guess what science is fine um then it it became a process of you know how can i access and understand and interpret science i didn't really go through a big muscle mag phase um my so i i lifted weights for a while and just kind of trusted the biggest guy in the gym. And then when I started trying to seek out information, it was when I started taking things more seriously and getting into powerlifting. And so I was like super into Westside for a few years. And Louis Simmons writing at least gives the very strong veneer that it's scientific. So, uh, you know, Soviet sports science was like light years ahead of ours and like there are these texts that he cites all the time that purport to be scientific. And so I I trusted that that was a like reliable relaying of scientific information. Um, and then like eventually I started becoming exposed to other sources uh, also on the internet and started becoming like a little bit more skeptical of both like West Side stuff, but more so just like Soviet sports science in general, because um, a lot of it was never actually published. It was just kind of like it. It was kind of like blogging, really. Like yeah. coaches would train people, and like they were successful in doing so, and then they just like write it up for a periodical and say like, "Hey, did this with my athletes? Seemed to work." 
uh, and like that's the majority of Soviet sports science. <laughs> like, there's it's it's not something we would recognize as the scientific method. It was it was series of case studies at best. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, basically, I just learned more about how the scientific process actually works, um, and then like gravitated to to other sources who were relaying like more modern scientific information and then started reading stuff for myself. And then I, I basically, the, the last, the last two phases you talked about are, that's like the exact same progression I took. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my story. I, I think, I think they're, they're broadly similar journeys, just differing in terms of where they started, like how, how fundamentally skeptical we were of science to begin with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now, one of the things that kind of goes hand in hand with that topic, right? So I mentioned there's that kind of know-it-all phase that usually results in a lot of arguing on the internet or, or at the very least trying to dunk on people on the internet. I, I feel like whenever you're in areas where people discuss a lot of, you know, evidence-based fitness stuff, there's a lot of people trying to change people's minds. And so uh, someone asked us some question related to changing people's minds. I don't remember exactly how the question was phrased. It was just kind of a topic of what do you think about changing people's minds or mm -hmm. something like that. So why don't you start out with this one? Because I think your answer is going to be better than mine. Yeah. So um, th this is something that... So if you if you follow me online, you probably think that this is something I'm trying to do often. And like, I'm not, um, so I, I view what I do in terms of public communication. So putting out the podcast, uh, writing articles for the website, you know, communicating on social media, I don't really set out to change people's minds and it would kind of like, I think it would be nice if I did, but that's not something that I'm too interested in or particularly trying to do. So essentially, if someone is receptive to what I'm saying, um, then either like I can teach them new things or if someone is already kind of receptive to having their mind changed, like if they believe one thing and I'm saying something else, but they weren't already clinging very strongly to that initial belief and are already in a state that being presented with evidence could change their mind, then I'm happy to change their mind. But I think a lot of people go into, especially writing about controversial subjects with, you know, my goal here is to write an article or make a video or whatever that's going to, like, convert these people that have different beliefs from mine, and that will be good. Uh, I, don't, I don't try to do that because I don't think that it's particularly effective in terms of public communication. I think that for the most part... If you're going to change people's minds with public communication, it's almost always people who were already receptive to having their minds be changed because they weren't cleaned to their initial belief super strongly in the first place. If you're talking about changing people's minds and like dislodging a deeply held belief um, and, you know, substituting a new one with it, then that almost always has to take place with just... Uh, non-threatening one-on-one private communication. Um, it, it's going to be, for most people, it's going to be almost like too threatening to have that conversation in public. And they'll, 
they'll probably just have too many defenses built up against your generalized data-based arguments that you throw at them. Um, so, and it can even work in reverse. So there's a phenomenon called the backfire effect, um, or is it the blowback effect? I think it's the backfire effect, one of the two, um, where if people already believe something and you present them with evidence that what they believed was in fact false, um, they actually wind up believing the thing that they initially believed even stronger because <laughs> it's generally not sufficient to change their minds. And then they'll kind of like develop immunity to those arguments you are trying to put forth and like try to develop counter arguments against them. And they just wind up believing the initial thing even stronger. Now that I think about it, the backfire effect may have been a casualty of the replication crisis. I'm not totally sure about that, but I'm pretty sure the state of the research as it stands now is either the backfire effect is a thing or just that presenting people with facts doesn't really change their mind one way or the other. Like it, it, do, it may not necessarily make them more recalcitrant in their prior beliefs, but it certainly doesn't seem to do a ton to change their minds unless their minds were already open to being changed. Um, and so I, I think mostly it's going to have to take place with just private one-on-one -on -one communication um, I think a Socratic approach is generally fairly effective. So most of the things we believe, you, me, everyone else, we don't take a ton of time and energy to audit our beliefs and check, like, why do I believe this? What evidence do I have supporting it? What gaps do I have in my, you know, in... in in the support that I have for this thing and like the foundational ideas underpinning this big belief that I have, like we don't do that because that's, it takes time. It's not like a fun, crazy stimulating thing. So like, I think something that that's useful is to start with like, Oh, okay. So you believe this thing? Like, why is that? And some people may not be open to answering questions at all. Um, like that, that in and of itself could come across as threatening. And if that is the case, you're probably not going to change their mind in the first place. Like they're, they're just not open to it at all. And changing people's minds is very much like a, it takes two to tango situation. You're not going to change someone's mind purely because you were so convincing with a particular idea. They have to be open to it. Like they have to be a, a, a willing recipient to the arguments you're putting forth. Um, you can't just destroy them with facts and logic? Correct. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, if someone's, you know, willing to answer a few questions, trying to take a few steps back and say, like, okay, you believe this? Well, why is that? And they'll probably have pretty good reasons at that first level of introspection. It's like, okay, well, you know, why do you believe that? What evidence do you have supporting this idea that's one layer down? And, like, that'll probably be good. Once you get, like, three or four layers down maybe things are going to start looking shaky and they might start realizing on, on their own that like, Oh, like the, the foundational ideas underpinning this thing, I believe maybe aren't as strong as I thought they were. Um, so that's, that's one useful tack to try to take where, you know, you're trying to get them to realize for themselves that maybe they don't have great reasons to believe what they believe, um, without you telling them that it's wrong, you know? Um, Another thing that, that I think is important for, for any discussion, whether it's trying to change minds or just like 
any conversation that might turn out kind of like debatey or combative is just start it by making sure like you and the other person are coming to the discussion with similar underlying assumptions and that you agree generally about standards of evidence. So like if if I'm trying to change someone's mind into them, like a conspiracy theorist YouTube channel matters just as much as a published meta-analysis, I don't know where to go from there. You know what I mean? Like, they they now are willing to enter into the discussion untold mountains of completely bullshit information that they believe completely uncritically. Uh, and, you know, you, you could support any belief if, if those are the standards of evidence you're willing to use. And so, you know, first off, try to set, not like ground rules, but just to make sure you have similar assumptions about, you know, what do we know about the world? What can we know about the world? How can we go about finding out reliable information about the world? If, and again, if there's huge differences of opinion about that, it may just not be a very fruitful conversation in the first place. Unless you want to take... 30 steps back and say like let's go to epistemology class together yeah. which like that conversation is probably not going to get off the ground in the first place um and, and then okay so make sure you have similar core assumptions and similar standards of evidence uh another thing that i think is pretty important is to make sure you're trying to change change people's minds about well, it's probably going to go better if you're having a discussion about facts rather than about values, because p two people can look at the same the same set of facts and have have different values, and so they come away with completely different ideas about what to do with those facts, um, and and bringing more information into that discussion ultimately isn't going to move it forward. So, for example. Uh, I know that these are supposed to be fun, lighthearted little discussions. Oh boy! Um, and I'm going to to dwell on this topic for the shortest amount of time possible. But it, it's the first thing that came to mind. Okay. So, you know, let's take the abortion debate. Okay. So for some people, they they believe very strongly that life begins at conception, and so like, you know. If, if you're then going to argue that like, oh, but like they're not feeling pain because the nervous system doesn't develop until such and such a day or like the brain isn't developed enough to like interpret those nerve signals until like such and such a day. That doesn't matter. Like there's there's a, a different value, like there's a different value system there and there's a different underlying assumption about when life begins and how to respond to that. So like ultimately, I don't think that that's... I don't think that's a discussion that science is ever going to to settle in in a way that's going to satisfy everyone engaged in that debate. Yeah. So I I think that that's like an archetypal example of you know two people can can have access to the same facts, believe strongly in the same facts, but their values are just so different that they come to very very different conclusions about what to do. Yeah, they're they're not debating facts of like the chronological timeline of embryo development or right. fetal development so yeah. so getting more into those details is not necessarily going to settle that for them Correct. is basically what you're what you're yeah yeah at. um so 
And dude, if you're trying to change people's minds about a question of values, then you have to take 30 steps back and be like, how comfortable are you with reevaluating your entire worldview? Right. And I can tell you, the answer to that question for 99% of people is not very fucking comfortable. <laughs> um, so that conversation's just probably not going to go anywhere. Uh, and then another piece of advice I would give is like, you want the conversation to be as non-threatening as possible. And you shouldn't try to push someone to agree with you, you know, within the same conversation, within the same week, within the same month. You want it to be you want it to be as non-threatening a space as possible and you shouldn't expect people to change their minds immediately. Sometimes it is just a situation where someone where you and that person have similar underlying assumptions, similar standards of evidence, they were exposed to bad information and you're like, "Oh, well, actually turns out there's been more research on this topic." You're just not up to date with the research, which like is fine. No one's up to date with all research all the time. Here's what the current data is suggesting. And they're like, oh, okay, well, I was wrong about this thing. That's cool. And like that exchange can take place very quickly. That's not how changing people's minds ten tends to go. Like it's usually dozens of conversations spread out over months and they very gradually come around to your way of seeing things. Or to make this clear, it could be the opposite. Could turn out that you're trying to change their mind and you're just ass backwards and like your mind slowly changes over time. Um, but yeah, don't expect it to be immediate and don't push the person and try to force it to be immediate. They're probably just going to recoil and that'll end the discussion. Um, like you said, that is something you see sometimes where someone in the process of trying to change someone else's mind, mm -hmm. they have to basically make that pitch. Yeah, for their belief and in the process of kind of finally writing out that whole like here's the entire reason why you should believe it sometimes a person will actually change their own thought about it and be like wow now that i've made this case i don't think my case is that strong yeah yeah. so it, it can be a, a pretty uh, productive constructive thing sometimes that for, way for sure and, and that's actually the last thing i wanted to say um which is like it's not going to go anywhere unless Everyone in the discussion, which again, ideally this is private, so ideally it's the the two people in the discussion, are both you know discussing it in good faith. Um, if you're if you view it as I know I'm right, I'm attacking this idea, and the only positive way that this discussion can end is they now agree with me. You're not going into that discussion with good faith. Like, you want the other person to be discussing it in good faith, but if that's how you're going into it, you are not discussing it in good faith. Um, and I think people kind of pick up on that vibe and sort of shut down. So, you know, you need to make sure that they're open to their mind being changed, that it's not just a completely recalcitrant idea that they're not willing to examine further. And you also need to make sure that that is true for yourself. Um... You know, just so you're going into it on an even playing field and you're not having a discussion in bad faith because that's uh, that's very common. And, and I think I kind of think if someone's asking the question of how can I change people's minds, they and I'm not trying to call out the individual who asked this question, but just kind of the general, um, you know, the, the general mood of like, hey, I want to convince people of things. I want tips on how to do that better. 
the underlying assumption there is probably I know I'm right about particular things and I know a lot of people around me are wrong about those particular things. So, you know, teach me hacks and tricks to get everyone around me to agree with me. That's not how you should be approaching this. Like, it's more about how to have a productive dis- discussion in, in good faith with other individuals. Yeah, you mentioned like that that step of like, let's make sure the other person is actually open to potentially changing their mind. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't realize it, but they go into that kind of conversation and the way they're mentally viewing it is, will you commit to being open to me helping you become correct? Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, but they have absolutely no openness to actually change their own opinion, you know. But uh, did, did you have anything else to add on the topic? I think that's it. Okay. So my answer is going to be far shorter than yours because I, I agree with everything you said previously. So I don't, I don't want to be repetitive, but I do think it's really funny uh, if you just kind of loosely follow evidence-based fitness on social media. The, the, the course that this usually takes is someone has a belief that is like literally part of their identity. It's in their screen name or, or like their Twitter handle. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And someone says like, I uh, would like to talk you out of that, that very big key thing of your identity. Mm-hmm. Um, Not only will you have to change your beliefs, you'll have to change your Twitter handle. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, get rid of your website because that, that won't count anymore <laughs> once you change your opinion. Um, we clearly have different values regarding levels of evidence. Um, and in order to make this nice and private, let's do it on a third party's YouTube channel. You know, it's <laughs> it's always... It's, it's always just like you look at the way yeah, this yeah. thing's brewing and it's like a perfect storm of doing everything wrong. And it's like the only value there, maybe you could argue, hey, someone will be able to watch a good argument and a bad argument happen. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. But uh, but no, I mean, in, in terms of that actually being like a constructive thing to do, you're just like, oh, you can see it from a mile away. You're like, they're going to maybe just kind of talk over each other or they'll do the other thing, which is they, they show up in front of a microphone and all of a sudden they're like extremely cordial and polite and like don't even talk about the stuff they disagree about. And then as soon as they get off, they're just like, this motherfucker, <laughs> what a dumbass. Yeah. Yeah. So evidence-based fitness is not the place uh, when it, especially like the nutrition wars. Oh my God. Like yeah. some of these diets, I mean, it, it, they are built into people's identities, you Dude, know, that. That's one of the reasons that we brought you on, if I'm being completely transparent, because it's just like, one, I know what I look like. I'm not the guy to talk about nutrition in the first place. But second, it's like, you know, I could inform myself about these things and wade into those waters and offer opinions, but like, I don't want to, you yeah, know? Like, yeah. I-, I am sure one of these days you're going to write something about nutrition and it is going to garner an order of magnitude more ire than I could possibly garner by saying <laughs> literally anything about training. Yeah, that, that is definitely true. Um, but the only thing I would add to your answer is when it comes to, you know, basically uh, convincing people of things or changing people's minds, one piece of advice I have to add on top of, of everything you mentioned is... I think people generally should be a little bit more selective about when they need to. I mm-hmm. think um, I think you see a lot where where people feel compelled uh, more than they should. Like I need to talk 
everyone into thinking exactly what I think about this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not downplaying the fact sometimes it is important. You know, sometimes you will see someone doing something that is uh, immediately detrimental to their health, like a dangerous thing that they are doing. And in that case, you could say, hey, I kind of feel a responsibility to at least say, hey, I'm really worried about what you're doing here. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, like if they're burning styrofoam and hanging over the flames and huffing the smoke because it strengthens the lungs. Right, yeah. For yeah. example. I mean, there's... I hope no one does that. I hope not. Um, but, but I mean, you, you will every now and then see somebody be like, oh, I'm going to do this crazy nutrition challenge. And you're like, dude, you might die. Or... Like, I'm not going to vaccinate my kids. Smallpox isn't that bad. Yeah. So, so there are instances I'm, I'm not saying like, Hey, everyone mind your own business and never, never chime in on anything. But, but I do think uh, it's valuable before you engage in something that's going to drain a lot of your time and energy and get you emotionally invested in a conversation that's going to be immensely frustrating and bring nothing but negativity to your day. Maybe think about like the things you mentioned is this an endeavor that is worth beginning? Is it yeah. worth embarking on this mission to to convince this person of something, knowing that it either isn't that important, doesn't affect me whatsoever, and or there's no way they're ever going to change their mind on this? Yeah. So, yeah. so I think one of the things that would really dramatically improve the discourse when it comes to evidence-based fitness would be if people were a little bit more selective on exactly when they felt compelled to really dunk on people on the internet and be like, I need you to agree with me on this. And it gets, it tends to get vitriolic. It tends to just become really negative pretty quickly. Uh, so I, I think my, the only thing I would add is like, think about it before you, before you enter that space and say like, yep, it's really critical that I convince everybody of this thing. Think about how important it is, but also think about your likelihood of success. Like just for sure, yeah. If nothing else, just for your own sanity and productivity. Mm -hmm. Like, you, you ever see someone that's like, dude, you you clearly have put like 72 hours into this conversation and you are not going to get anywhere near where you want to. There was an epic thread about polyunsaturated fatty acids on... Oh, man. I'm aware of it, I think. I, I don't remember for sure, but I think it was this guy named Tom McDonald. I think it was on something yeah. he posted... Um, and I don't remember who the primary combatant in this situation was, but there was some dude who just thought that like poofas are, are poison. Um, and that dude, that Facebook thread, the last I saw of it, I want to say it had 22,000 comments. Yeah. And like a third of them were this one dude. And, and, you know, probably... There were a few other people who were like in the pro or neutral PUFA camp who were uh, who were also probably each responsible for about a tenth of the comments in that thread. But like, dude, yeah, there there were people who clearly invested dozens, if not hundreds of hours <laughs> of their life into that. And I'm sure no one's mind was changed about anything. Yeah. Now, the last thing I will say is uh, one of the things that I think you and I have in common is that we really don't worry too much about, like we're very comfortable letting other people do what they want to do. Like, mm -hmm. like live how you want to live, think what you want to think. It's generally okay with me as long as you're not hurting anybody. Yeah. So in line with that, like if you just really love chatting about this stuff with people and kind of getting into some of these discussions, I'm not saying you shouldn't, but, but what I hate is when people clearly are like bringing a lot of just absolute 
negativity and frustration into their own life unwittingly. Mm -hmm. And it's like, dude, if you love doing it, do it. Like, that's fine. You know, we want you to do whatever, whatever keeps you happy, whatever makes you have fun. Just don't be like super mean and vitriolic and stuff. But, but yeah, I just, for a lot of people, I'm like, just, you don't seem to be getting any joy from this and you're not talking anyone into anything. Yeah. So like maybe just reconsider how often you need to do this. So I, I can tell you what I personally do. Yeah. So like I said, at the top of this topic, uh, in terms of public communication, that is, you know, solely directed at people who, you know, may weakly disagree with my perspective, but who are open to their minds being changed. You read it. I convince you. Cool. That's nice. Um, people who, you know, don't have a belief about a particular topic and are just trying to be informed about it. Um, you know, that's that's kind of who I primarily write to. Um, and occasionally I'll write an argumentative piece that's like, hey, you probably believe this thing. Uh, I kind of don't think that's correct. And those tend to be my longest articles outside of like squat bench deadlift guides because I, I do try to be as as polite about things as possible where it's just like, you know, here are some things you you probably believe you probably have very good reasons for believing them. They're very reasonable things for someone to believe and and try to present their view as charitably as possible before saying like, and there's, you know, a different way of looking at this. Um, I definitely don't think you're dumb for believing something different, but you know, let's just look at it. But, but I very, very rarely even attempt to do that. And then in terms of like commenting on stuff, I'm, I'm the drive by dude. Where, like, I don't know, I, like, if, if I see someone's, if, if I see someone's Twitter handle is, like, Carnivore Karen, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, if I see someone posts a status or, like, in a comment thread, and they say something I generally disagree with, I will give them two comments to test the waters. Where I'll, you know, type something up, say, like, hey, like, I see what you're saying. Uh, here, here's some counter evidence, potentially worth considering. And then, you know, if they respond in a very upset way, I'm just like, okay, have a nice day. Uh, If they say like, oh, cool, I wasn't aware of this information, thanks. Then it's like, okay, cool, have a nice day. That was positive. Or if they say like, oh, that's interesting. Here here are a couple follow-up questions. Then like, I'll answer that. And then if it seems like I'm, they're trying to get me sucked into a debate, I'm like, nope, have a nice day. Uh, Or if they're like, oh, okay, cool. That's, that's what I wanted to know. Thank you very much then that's the end of that discussion. Um, I I used to get sucked into a lot of arguments on social media. And it's like you were saying, just, it was a complete waste of my time and the time of everyone else who was involved in those discussions. So yeah, like now if I, very, very rarely will I see someone who seems to have a very entrenched belief and say like, okay, time to go after it. And, (laughs) and, like I was saying, when I do that, I'm not I'm not thinking I can lob a bomb and change a mind. It's essentially just like, okay, I'm probably hunkering in for somewhere between two and maybe a dozen cumulative hours of conversation with this person. Uh, and then that may still not make any progress whatsoever. Um, so yeah, I'm very judicious about attempting to do that. This made me think of 
uh, last thing I want to say about the topic, uh, we, we talked on a previous fireside chat about the things like our pet peeves, the things that, that get us to be a, a bit more curmudgeonly than normal. Mm-hmm. One of the things that has happened to me only a few times, but it really grinds my gears is sometimes someone will reach out to me um, and ask my my opinion on a topic and then like insist on like, no, Eric, you're having an argument with me now. <laughs> Dude, that drives me so insane because like what I'll do is I'll, I'll try to be like, you know, I'll be like, okay, well, I'll give my opinion. I'll give some justification for it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they might push back on it and be like, oh, well, they want some clarification. Of course, I'm happy to clarify and, and I'll give more. And, but then you, there's that little point in the conversation when you notice, oh no, they're arguing with me until I change my mind. And there's no way for me to get out of this. And at that point I, I'm, I'm like, okay, this is insane. You know, like that drives me absolutely nuts. Yeah. And then I just leave the argument. I'm yeah. like, sorry. Uh, I I gave you my, my opinion, the justification and the clarification. Uh, if you disagree, uh, I wish you the best of luck. No, I certainly agree with, with that. And I should be very clear. Um, you know, I mentioned that this general thing does kind of grind my gears and get me a little bit grumpy. Um, it doesn't mean that I'm angry at the person doing it. So if you're listening along and you're thinking, oh, Eric probably hates me now, not at all the case, but every now and then people will try to drag me into an argument that I don't want to be in and I don't hold it against them. I don't get angry at them, but I do basically rapidly excuse myself from the argument that I, (laughs) that I had no intention of entering. All right. Um, one topic that people have been asking us to talk about topic that's important to both of us and that would be beer who do you think should kick this off i can kick it off it it looks like you have more on the outline Uh, yeah i do all right so um i like beer just in general uh there are a few styles that i particularly enjoy and i don't necessarily drink them all that often um just because you'll see why okay so uh i really really like citrusy ipas and I do drink them fairly often. Uh, the first time I tried an IPA, I thought I hated it. It, I mean, I don't remember what it was or what kind of hops it used. But, like, there are, I would say there's, like, four broad varieties of hops. So there's, like, citrusy hops. There's, like, piney, evergreeny tasting hops. Uh, and then there's, like continental european hops which are slightly slightly bitter and like i don't know it's it's tough it's tough to describe their flavor i guess coming up short anyway they do have a very distinct flavor so if if you've ever had like a german beer the hop characteristic from that beer is is what european hops tend to taste like uh and then english hops which are kind of like toasty and like for lack of a better word like kind of like spicy almost not like you know not like high capsaicin content um if you want a a good example of what that what that tastes like um try to find a good esb um they'll typically be hopped with traditional english hops so anyway as far as ipas go they're generally hopped with either the very like evergreeny tasting hops or the citrusy tasting hops and i only really got into beer in Oh, maybe like 2014, 2015. So I don't know like the whole history of 
uh, like IPAs, at least in America. Um, but at least when I got into drinking them or like got into beer in general, it seemed like virtually all of the IPAs I tried at first had kind of like the piney, evergreeny tasting hops. And I just wasn't into that. And so I thought I didn't like IPAs. And then the first time I had one that had like the citrusy tasting hops, uh, and you know, now I know more about them. I love citra hops like that, that if I, if I'm looking at an IPA in the store and it says like, it has a shit ton of citra hops. I'm like, okay, like I'm sold, uh, need you say more. And so, um, yeah, I like citrusy IPAs. Possibly my favorite beer of all time is, uh, Duvel, um, which makes, I'm not sure if they're from Belgium. I think they are, but they make Belgian style beers. Uh, they, they did some limited runs of their, their typical triple with different hop varietals in it. Um, and so we got the, the Duvel triple hop, uh, Citra beer and my God, it was delicious. I thought it was just a new thing. I got super excited, turned out to be a limited run. I was deeply disappointed. Uh, but yeah, citrusy and like hazy, juicy New England style IPAs or just any style of IPA with citrusy hops. Very, very good stuff. Um, probably my favorite general style of beer, which, and these are the ones I don't drink super often, are uh, Belgian triples and quads. And the reason I don't drink them very often is they're very calorie dense and very boozy. And I'm like theoretically trying to cut, and so I'm not interested in drinking a 12 ounce beer that has like 370 calories um, or something like that. And also like, dude, when I turned like 25, I went from never getting hangovers to like kind of getting hangovers a little bad. And so if I drink like one quad that's like 12% ABV, I'm not going to be hung over the next morning, but I will, I will feel a, a little off from just one. And like, you know, that's fine on, on occasion, but that's not how I want to go about living my life. Um, so yeah, I don't drink triples and quads very often, but when it's a night that it's like, okay, like I'm going to have a few beers, I'm going to cut loose. It's going to be a good time. You know, fuck the macros. Then, uh, triples and quads are, are probably my favorite beer style. But like I said, I just love beer. So citrusy IPAs and Belgian triples and quads, those are, those are definitely my go-to's. But really the only beer style I just generally don't like um, are sours. Like, I just never got into them. And I don't know, dude. Like, they just don't vibe with me. Uh, and kind of the other popular style that I don't dislike them, but I would almost always pick anything else over them are porters. Um, so I, I like a good stout. I like the toasted malt. But... For whatever reason, like toasted malt with like pretty aggressive hopping, and I don't know. Like I, I, when I taste toasted malt, I want the whole flavor to be pretty intense. So like porters, just just generally don't cut it for me. So I don't know the technical like like the technical point when porters end and stouts begin. But I've had some damn good imperial porters, which to me read as a stout. Uh, but yeah, not, I'm not crazy about porters. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll fuck with pretty much any other beer style. And it depends what kind of mood I'm in. So if I just came back from like 
I don't know, like playing basketball in the summer got really sweaty or like I did some yard work and I'm really overheated. Like at that point, I don't know. I kind of just want like a cheap, shitty light beer. Like it, that that will hit the spot in a way that like like a, a quad certainly wouldn't do it for me right then. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there, there is a time and place for pretty much any other beer style. Uh, citrusy IPAs and triples and quads are my favorite. And uh, sours are, are the only one that I really just generally don't like. Uh, and I'm not crazy about porters, but anything else, like if it's beer, I'll drink it. How about you? Yeah. So I'm a little bit more, um, picky with beer i think um the the types of beers i like are a little bit more my my beer list is a little bit more restrictive so uh i love ipas uh big time so in the winter like like you mentioned sometimes there are different uh scenarios where you want a certain type of beer but for me all scenarios lead to some kind of ipa so like (laughs) in the colder months i love to have like an extremely piney ipa like i want it to feel like i wedged a straw into a pine tree and i'm like drinking from that um in the winter i also do i I will say you got me on to triples and quads which i like a lot um now in the summer when it's time for kind of a more refreshing lighter flavor that's when i like a lot of citrusy ipas um i've had some really good ipas that have like a little hint of grapefruit or a little hint of like there's a 21st Amendment brewery makes like a blood orange IPA that I love. Oh, yeah. It's really, really good. Um, but yeah, one of the cool things uh, about beer, given that we're in North Carolina, though, is really, really good beer scene in this state, particularly in Asheville. Um, and, and so like, you know, I, I love uh, Sierra Nevada, New Belgium. I think they both have a, a place in Asheville. I know at least New Belgium does. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's also a place there called Thirsty Monk that I love. And you mentioned like one of your favorite beers ever was like a limited run. Um, you told me to try one of the the beers at Thirsty Monk, the Green Monk. Yeah. And it's like one of the best beers I've ever had. That is also a limited time run. That thing's never going to happen again. It's never going to happen or it's or it was seasonal? No. My understanding, it was a one-time partnership between two different breweries. Oh, I don't no. think it's ever going to happen again, man. Oh, that was so good. Dude, the last time I went there to, to Asheville, I specifically stopped by there and I was like, give me as much of it as a person can legally buy at once. <laughs> and they're like, bro, that stuff's gone and oh, like probably man. not coming back. That's rough. Yeah. So li- life is like that sometimes, unfortunately. But, uh, but yeah, IPAs for me are definitely the way to go. And, and some triples and quads on top of that. And one of the cool things about beer um, is that it can it kind of overlaps with my other favorite thing in life, which is statistics. So very brief story time. <laughs> um, so William Gossett was, was employed at the Guinness Brewery. And uh, he, he was a chemist and a brewer and a, sta- a statistician. He actually developed the tea distribution and the tea test for it's not like, oh, did you know some guy who likes to brew beer invented the tea test? It's like, no, he did it for beer. So like that was all developed at the Guinness Brewery to facilitate their beer testing processes. So uh, the, the tea test and the tea distribution completely revolutionized statistics at the time. Uh, huge impact, huge lasting impact on how we do research and analyze data. Um and yeah, do, so do you want to give the story for why we've referred to it as students T test? Yes. Yeah. So you might be thinking, well, every other stat procedure I know is somebody's name, but, but I've never heard of the gossip T test. Right. 
And so it's called the student T-test because when he was employed at Guinness, um, he a clause in his contract basically indicated, you are developing stuff at our brewery on our dime. And so you can't just be freely publishing that stuff wherever you want. Like th that belongs to Guinness. And so basically like he kind of just like leaked it and just said like, yeah, I'm just going to write under the name student, like, like some just generic name. And so, so my understanding of the, of the story is that's basically why it was called students T test at, was because he was like, well, I can't call it my name because then I'm going to get fired. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, um, cool thing about him though, is like, I, I would imagine largely because he had to do some of that stuff, like kind of like leaking stuff here and there. Uh, for whatever reason, he a rare thing about him is he was friends with both Pearson and Fisher, who were like two pillars in statistics at the time, but hated each other. Like the the idea that someone could be friends with both of them is kind of a miracle. Like it, it's it, you wonder how it worked out because they hated each other so much. But um, just to get an idea of the sense of the time, like you've got Gossett developing the t test. You've got Pearson, like you've heard of a Pearson correlation. That's him. He also did the first thing resembling a meta-analysis, which actually led to an erroneous conclusion, which is a fun historical fact. <laughs> uh, so whenever everyone acts like meta-analyses are these like perfect thing that are the absolute top tier evidence, it's like, yeah, but sometimes they're wrong. So keep that in mind. But uh, he, he also, Pearson's been credited for kind of formally introducing the use of p-values. Mm -hmm. I'm sure someone who's more tapped into the history is like, well, actually, you know, it's more complicated than that. But these are kind of the lazy historical highlights. Uh, and then Fisher, you know, it's largely credited for helping develop the analysis of variance, which is open up any strength or nutrition journal, you're going to see ANOVA in there big time. So uh, just a, a really interesting time where a lot of these uh, foundational things were happening with statistics. And like all good things, it leads back to beer. You love to hear it. You love to hear it. All right. I think that about does it for this episode. People have been asking when are normal episodes going to come back. Uh, we are still making regular episodes of the podcast. The next one will be coming out uh, this Thursday. So, you know, be on the lookout for that. Fireside chats are something we are doing in addition to regular podcast episodes. They're not supplanting them. Uh, so yeah, be on the lookout. There is another normal podcast episode coming out this Thursday. Uh, hopefully I will be allowed to be a temporary guest host on it, but we will just see. Anyway, that about does it. Uh, thank you for listening. If you have a question or topic you would like us to discuss either on the normal podcast or on a future fireside chat, you can ask it at tiny.cc slash sbsqa. Looking forward to hearing from you. If you're listening on YouTube, like, comment, subscribe, fucking hate myself, deal with it. If you like the podcast, rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, yeah, hope things are going well. Stay safe and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit StrongerByScience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.